Hey, it's Ashes, and welcome back to another episode of Simply Put. Last week, we talked about some of the shared experiences at my alma mater between myself and the other panelists, and I touched briefly on the sheer amount of things that we were involved in compared to our other non-POC counterparts, but I only briefly mentioned what that meant. Like, I had this whole section planned where I wanted to talk about it, and I just completely glossed over it. So it wasn't until my husband mentioned that I had said that I'm involved in all this stuff, but I only ever mentioned theater, that I realized that it was gone. So I want to take the first little bit to fix that. So we're going to take a quick 60 second or so break, and I want you to use that time to think about the things that you and your friends were involved in during college or high school, if college wasn't your thing. And I want you to keep that in mind when I tell you all of the things that I was involved in during college. All right, let's jump right back on into the ridiculous amount of stuff that I was involved in. And like, just to note that this amount of work was not actually uncommon with other students of color on campus. And I am by no means saying I was doing the most because I, I was not. But we were in an environment where you either grew to become some sort of student leader and you thrived or you couldn't make it and you ended up transferring. Are you guys ready? Because this is gross. Um, I was a student ambassador for the college, which means that I worked in the admissions office and I was in charge of connecting with potential students who had filled out those like forms that you fill out to show interest online, answering basic emails, stuffing envelopes, uh, giving campus tours. And in some cases, I started going on college fairs because the criminal justice department consisted of like one and a half professors. On the other end of that, I was also a STARS caller. So I was calling the alumna to pledge money, to make recurring donations, to pledge again. And uh, for whatever reason, in calling and trying to convince them to give money again, they tried to set us up based on major. At the time, I was a biochemistry and forensic science major. So I got a lot of the sciencey people to call and try to make that connection and pull on their heartstrings so that they would donate more money. I was also a service scholar with AmeriCorps. So I did between 300 and 450 hours of community service a year in return for uh, AmeriCorps paying a portion of my tuition. It was between like 12 and $1,500, which I then used to have a room by myself. <laughs> I was also an at-risk youth services coordinator with the Community Service Center, where I ran a program that was designed to set teens who had been in trouble up with mentors within the college. And when I had inherited the program, it was from a nursing major, and uh, I hated it. <laughs> uh, I didn't like the way that it was run. I didn't like the way that the mentees and mentors were set up. And so I completely restructured the program while I was there. And then to round out the paid portion of my time at Cedar Crest, I also worked at the library between 16 and 40 hours a week for the entire time that I was there. Now we're entering into the unpaid portion of the things that I was involved in. So for starters, I was the only freshman chosen to work on an APHIS-based research project, and I continued that through the completion of my college career. I was also a member of the Honor and Judicial Board. I did tech theater, one show a semester from freshman year, all the way up until I believe my senior year. I was also a part of way too many clubs, <laughs> like way too many clubs, it was gross. But the ones that I did 
every year was the Forensic Science Student Org- Organization and then the Biology Club. I was also in Chem Club for a little bit and like a couple others, but I wasn't ever able to consistently be there because the time switched based on who was in the cabinet of the clubs. And once I switched out of the Science Center, none of that correlated with my schedule. I was also a member of the Student Activity Board. I was the chair for the Junior Ring Ceremony. I participated in Alternative Spring Break every year. um, And I sat on the planning committee for two of those years. I couldn't my last year because I wasn't going to be there to go on the trip. And then academically, I took no less than 20 credits semester and I switched my major from biochemistry concentrated in forensic science to criminal justice concentrated in juvenile justice and psychology. The second semester of my sophomore year, and I still managed to have all of my credits in to graduate early uh, with, with more than decent grades. That's ridiculous, like that's stupid. And the more that I sit here and I look at it, the more angry that I get because it took me so many years after college to realize that that's not normal. Like, yes, I enjoyed being busy. I, I genuinely work better when I have more things to do. Being busy has no legitimate correlation to how much worth I have as a human being. And just because I'm able to take on more than the average person my age or the average person in general and still be successful in that is morally neutral. And even knowing that, I still felt like I had to be involved in everything and take every opportunity to prove myself as an equal to my peers in the college to the members of the college. And I don't feel that way anymore. Like we talked about it earlier. I was in um, an admin meeting for uh, Pledge Her Our Best. And we were talking about like how to know where our boundaries are and to make sure that we're setting boundaries within the group and we're not taking on too much. And we were trying to like talk it through and it was really funny because at one second, uh, either Nicole or Lenny were just like, you know what, like, I just I just trust that if I need to step away, you guys will be good. I think that we've got a good group together and we're all very cognizant of where everybody else is and being able to step into that and offer them support if they need support in some other area and understand that all of that stuff comes first. To see a group of black women be able to say, If I am not capable of taking on something else, I'm not going to do it. And if I can't do this well, I'm not going to start it is really empowering because it took me so long to get to the point where if I'm really passionate about something, I will 100% make it work. I don't care what it is. But if I'm like on the cusp of it, if it doesn't, if it fits in my schedule, like that's fine, but I'm not going to move anything around. But if I don't want to do it, I I won't do it and I'm not going to feel bad about it and I'm not going to make up excuses. It's going to be like, you know what, that doesn't fit in my schedule. And I feel that way about more than just um, business or like activism things. I feel that way about friendships and like when your friends are having emergencies or they want you to um, join their multi-level marketing company or whatever to go to their parties because they have to have so many people involved in the party and answering questions or whatever. Um, If I genuinely don't want to do it, I'm not going to do it. And I think that that's a really important boundary that we all set both in our, in our business and in our personal lives. But aside from the fact that I was involved in way more than I had any right to be involved in and was consistently willing to take on more, 
the stuff that I took on were all things that had some component that gave back to the community or to the school or some sort of community service project or component to it. Everything that I did was so tailored to like wanting community service, even right down to going to Cedar Crest and understanding that part of our orientation was community service and that we had a community service fraternity on campus and that like the community service department was big and well-funded. Like all of those things were really, really important to me because I'd been prioritizing helping people and talking to them about how to help them better since I was a little kid and I was receiving help from the people who wanted to help people. I wanted to make sure that everybody had their basic needs met. I wanted to make sure that everybody was safe and I didn't necessarily have the money to do that, so I did a lot of volunteering my time. A lot of my weekends uh, were spent helping collect food donations and put them in boxes, and then um, there was like the local church uptown right off of our main street would do it. I believe it was the first Saturday or Sunday of the month they would have everybody together and have them come and like pack the boxes if they had a lot of donations they would want people to come in on Saturdays so that they would have everything full and it would be distributed on Sundays and if they didn't have a lot then they would have you come in early on Sundays and every single time uh, I would come home and I would have a box that was packed there just sitting on my porch but it was so important to me to make sure that those things were done and to make sure that everybody that could be was food secure. And while we were never at a point where I never had food to eat, it was very much because my grandparents had a big garden and they canned and they hunted and they did things like that more so than it was because we had the money for the food. The garden created an overabundance of canned vegetables. They had an overabundance of venison and that just kind of made its way to our freezer and it helped tide us over tide us over in the times when things were tough and so I wanted to make sure that everybody had that little bit of of leeway that little bit of cushion to make sure that they wouldn't go to bed hungry and that their parents wouldn't go to bed hungry and even in high school a lot of the clubs and organizations that I was in I always tried to make sure that they had some sort of community service component like one of the biggest things that I was a part of was pride youth programs and they had like the four pillars of pride and it required you to do a certain amount of community service every year I was making sure that I was doing community service and I was involved in a lot of things (laughs) one holiday season even I was running around and I was involved in every donation-based Christmas concert or holiday concert and there was one year that I was a part of one two three three I was a part of uh three different church worship teams because all of the churches in our area were really really good about giving back to the community so you would get a donation to get in for the choral concert and whether it be like a food donation or a monetary donation or whatever and then like you'd watch the show and you'd leave and like my contribution since I never had the money to do it was like being a part of the show so I I went from like the Presbyterian church to the Baptist church and then to the Assembly of God which I believe is called something else now and I was a part of all of their worship teams (laughs) 
and I wanted to make sure that I put in the work. And it's funny because uh, I hate doing all of that now. I don't hate the community service part, but I really hate performing. And back then I was like, yeah, like this is, this is my thing, community service through performance. And now I'm like, I will work behind the stage. Okay, thanks. But like on top of all of that, I was also a youth mentor for um, the troubled youth in our county, very similar to the program that I was running for the community service department. And it meant that one night a month, I would co-teach a class to youth and their parents. And I did that from my sophomore year of high school when I first started until I graduated. And then I went back a couple times after I graduated to make sure that everything was all set. But it also made me a mentor for those youth outside of that classroom. It still isn't uncommon for me to get like a random Facebook message like, oh, hey, like you look like this goth girl who taught this class one. That was 14 years ago. Uh, it, it, and I'm sure that it helps that one of those troubled youth is now my sister-in-law and is often the person who I credit with me being able to do what I do now or me being passionate about working with um, teens who are struggling now because I worked with her when she was a teenager. She knows that I care and she knew that I cared then and, and I consistently do the best that I can to meet the needs of those that are struggling within the community, of those that I'm part of their support team, their treatment team, their care team, whatever, all the way back from when I was in high school. And when it came time to pick what I was going to do during the summer, during college, I was like, yeah, like I'm a forensic science major. Like it would be really cool to see like the law side of things so that I have like, an understanding of what this looks like because there's a chance I would be testifying in court and I want to be comfortable in a courtroom setting. So I chose to intern with the prosecuting attorney's office and that was fantastic <laughs> um, and then I switched my major and I went back the next year as a criminal justice major and I got to see like the same things but with like a different perspective so I got to see the restorative justice happening firsthand and I have significantly more perspective on that than I did back then but I still do not understand the amount of shit that that man took from the community for being very restorative justice centered. And then the fact that Gary, Gary's ideology in regards to the law and Scott's ideology in regards to incarceration were both so strong. And the idea of restorative justice and they they did very very well instilling in me the importance of restorative justice and the importance of of being cognizant of the repercussions that come from being a part of one end or the other of the criminal justice system that in and of itself is the one reason why i don't hate myself for being a criminal justice major who now speaks about black and brown issues because <laughs> there is a level of shame to that um, that is very real for me. And the most important thing that they worked so hard to teach was if there is a need, meet the need. If there is a problem because a need isn't met, meet the need. And then the problem fixes itself. And I, I think a lot about a story that Scott used to tell. And Scott um, worked, I don't know if he still does, um, for the National Institute of Corrections as well. And he would go around and accredit and like 
rate and make sure that jails and prisons were functioning properly and trying to like fix the problems that they had. And one of the stories that he told in almost every one of his classes was that um, they had issues at one jail with inmates who were complaining that stuff was never clean and were like freaking out about it and it was causing issues and like not riots, but like they were loud. They're like, this shit's dirty and like throwing things and like all of the things that come from being like really frustrated because you're not in a clean environment and you should be. And so he was just like, well, why aren't you giving them cleaning supplies? Why aren't you allowing them to get clean? Well, they might do this and this and this with them. And Scott's just like, okay, well, like set the expectation. You guys can have these real cleaning supplies as long as you're being responsible with them and using them for their intended purposes. And if we find out that you're not, or if you're failing to use them, them appropriately, then they get taken away and then you don't have them. Well, by the time he was going to check back, everybody's cells were clean and the problems related to not living in a clean environment stopped. And the same thing happened again where there were a lot of prisoners, the prison, the prison was overcrowded, so it was one and a half times maximum capacity and people were getting their food cold. They'd line up and by the time it got to the last people, the food were cold and it created problems every night and fights trying to get to the front of the line. He's like, well, why don't you just let them have a microwave? And they can be responsible for keeping it clean. Well, what if they do like something with it? What if they fuck with it? Then they don't get warm food anymore. And that is a natural consequence. Allow them to have the natural consequence. Give them the chance to have it taken away. And then once it's, it's taken away, you can be like, hey, like, we tried this. You broke our trust. Like, that's not an option anymore. There was a need that could be met. There was no reason not to meet that need. Meet the need and the problem stops. And that's what happened. From a psychological standpoint, if their depression is related to a need of theirs not being met, find a way to connect them with someone or something that will meet that need. My best friend is a counselor and she is fantastic. It's Alyssa. She, she's been a guest writer on Simply Ashes once before and she's been on Simply Put three or four times. I don't think that I published the fourth one. And she likes to tell the story of a man traveling to other countries and trying to get information about how they treat like mental health issues in other countries because some countries have like really really high rates of depression and some have really low rates of depression and he was in <sighs> I wish that I could remember I want to say it was like some sort of like island I could be wrong I apologize if I'm wrong but they were at this at this place and this man worked in the fields and he had some sort of injury and he ended up really upset because he didn't have the ability to meet the needs of his family like his daughter didn't have milk and his wife then had to work as well because I believe there was some sort of pay cut and that was what was referenced when they talked about depression because this man that they were talking to and he didn't know what depression was well, and so they're like trying to describe it and come up with a description in like a different language. And maybe there's just a language barrier where you're not describing it correctly. And like he didn't understand because like depression didn't really exist there. So then he was explaining, you know, like, oh, you know, they feel defeated or they feel sad or they feel like they don't want to live anymore. Like any of these things. The guy is just like, oh, like that makes sense. And he tells a story about this guy. He was depressed. He was sad. So the guy's just like, okay, like we're on the same page. Like, how did, how did you treat him? Did you give him, did you give him pills? Like, what did you do? And he's just like, oh no, like 
we saw that he was sad and we set him down and we talked to him and we figured out why he was sad and he told us and then the community came together and got him a goat so that his daughter would be able to have milk to drink and wouldn't starve and then he was happy again (laughs) because the need was he was concerned that he wasn't going to be able to feed his daughter and then was able to feed his daughter they fixed the need they met his need and from that same best friend it's funny because I'll call her every once in a while and spend like an hour talking about like these are the things that I'm struggling with and I don't know how to move past them and there'll be like five or six different things and like we'll get to the end and he's and she'll be like oh yeah like you're not meeting your needs like what have you done for you and I'm like oh like I haven't done anything it's like yeah like you should you should try to meet at least one of those needs and then go from there and see what fixes itself and then you can sit down and you can reevaluate I'm sure by now there are people who are wondering what this has to do with what I talk about normally. If you haven't made that connection, it's restorative justice, reformative justice, criminal justice reform, any of those things, plus defunding the police. At the end of the day, like all of those things boil down to funneling money and resources into the community in order to meet the needs of the populace. For the most part, when I was a kid, like, churches gave back to their communities. And thankfully, like, I grew up in a community where that's still true. But I've also lived in communities where there is, that is not the case anymore. And now many churches, and no, I'm not even going to say places of worship. I'm going to very specifically say churches. Many churches function or are looking to function as multi-million, multi-billion dollar corporations. They're not giving back to the community in the way that they have in the past. And yes, some of that may be the sense of the people who don't have money going and donating the last bit of money that they have in tithing every week and then needing the resources that the the church gives so there's never any funneling in of money that doesn't immediately get recirculated within the actual church populace. Like, that is entirely possible but Joel Olstein lives in like a multi-million dollar estate and that seems like that's probably not the problem for everybody. And like that that all doesn't fall on churches. Hell, gangs, gangs have also been a really big community support in the past. Many, many kids, many, many young adults get sucked into gangs because they're, they provide them with like this sense of family, this sense of belonging, but most importantly, they make sure that their basic needs are met. The same with the mafia. And yes, like those in particular come with risks and possible consequences. But if you sit down and you think about it, like how many kids could have been saved from that kind of lifestyle and could be living their life outside of prison right now if we invested in them and we made sure that their basic needs were met. If their basic needs were met in the first place, the gang affiliation, the give and take of that sort of relationship may not even have been ideal for them. I've worked with enough kids who claim to be in gangs and this is like Michigan gangs, not like we're not in LA, we're not in Chicago, we're not in New York, I'm not talking about that. I have very, very functional knowledge about that and I am not speaking on that at all. I want to make that very clear. But the kids that I've worked with, a lot of them do talk about, like, being affiliated with gangs and 
and what that means and a lot of them do have like gang related tattoos have brothers or sisters who are part of gangs or who are dating people who are in gangs or they're searching to date somebody who's in a gang because they want the protection that that has because they don't have that at home their home environment isn't safe all of them are fully aware of the consequences that being in a gang comes with almost all of them can sit down and be like dude like miss lynette like i don't think you understand the life that i'm living outside of that and i promise you like carrying is not that big of a deal like having a piece on me not that big of a deal taking the blame for something because i'm the youngest and it'll it'll go away at 18 not the worst thing like going into this old woman's house and stealing her meds and if i get caught i get caught like that is not the worst thing like my dad's at home he'll beat me to death like being in here keeps me safe they're they're fully aware of why they joined and very very rarely in my experience and the tiny little Michigan related populace is it I want the lifestyle of doing drugs all the time and killing people it's almost always something else and those kids that tell you about all of the other things are the ones that I never would have met if their basic needs were met at home and if people were making sure that they were fed and their communities were taking care of them I've worked with hundreds of kids in the last 16 years and I think that maybe I would have met 10 of them. So how do we fix that? Like, how do we fix the idea that gangs are better at keeping our youth safe and having their needs met when their parents maybe can't, even if they, even if they want to, like, can't? What is the answer to that? Uh, I promise you it wasn't cutting after school programs in poor communities or even in not poor communities, if we're being honest, or cutting art and music in schools or band or any of the school things that then created community programming. I remember when I was a kid in like seventh or eighth grade, I had art class and we had one of the projects was putting our art out in the community and then having a day where like everybody walked around and bid on your artwork or they had the chance to talk to the artist or all of these things that don't have the same impact when you're watering your acrylic paint down so far, it might as well just be watercolor. And it takes away from kids' passion to do better work, to do better art, to be passionate about wanting to do that. Because if your community is so poor that they're watering down their acrylic paint, then your home life is also probably not able to get you proper art supplies or an instrument to be able to do things passionate at home or practice at home. We're cheating our children out of creativity. We're cheating them out of the resources to create those things and follow those those passions. Even if there's this really, really, you can't afford anything in the community and the entire community is like, there's no way that any kid from that community without even the bare minimum supplies can ever be able to be on the same wavelength as a student who may not even be there but has access to proper supplies and the ability to practice. So then you're taking college options away from them. You're taking options like selling their art on Etsy or like whatever. You're taking any bit of thing in high school to put a career in those creative that they're just completely away. Like our community 
if your community is falling apart. Hard to keep your community from falling apart if you're underfunded. And if you're underfunded, it's probably because your community is falling apart. Like it's all this really god awful wheel that is almost impossible to throw yourself out of. So how, how, how do you make it happen? How do you make ends meet? Where money come from? And not, not by gen, but by using that money to mental health professionals to make sure that patients who are struggling, they're struggling and who are reaching out for help don't have to wait months for their first appointment. And on top of that, making sure that those professional insurance, making sure that there's no because your work funded and gave out in the middle of a pandemic because you have ever many months your work can no longer sustain it and you can't afford to pay for COBRA insurance. Making sure that you have enough for your DHHS office that you can sign the the people in the community up when they need it um, and have people there to help and connect them in a timely manner. By making health support department or something of sort that's capable of doing wellness checks side by side with officers to make sure that those works don't end in death and there are some qualified, professionally trained and qualified and licensed able to handle those sort of incidences responsibly. And then the police officer there and the mental health professional just in case they're needed. How else? You can take party like a Friday or Saturday night and then we hit up the court system on Tuesday or like they do um, juvenile court in your county instead of giving them MIP and having them a whole bunch of whatever depending on your MIP and like depending on your county like that may be enough for you to be in jail or for you to be in juvie um, also depending what you look like give them a community consequence however many Saturdays a month out to mow old people's lawns or shovel snow after school or get a couple of brushes and buckets of paint and help paint a storefront or repaint a sign or do the community projects that the city hasn't been able to make happen but need to be done. Maybe that's planting flowers. Maybe that's a beach maybe that if, you, if you have a beach. Like, maybe. But allowing the community members to see of these kids or people offenders whatever other places than just in their mugshots like allow the community to see them taking responsibility they've caused and doing what they can to turn around and give that back to the community and make it right and something as simple as that does a lot to humanize and i think people forget that um and i think that they forget that the news is very hard to dehumanize people especially black and brown people especially black and brown um to see that oh that's just another oh that's just another it doesn't look like they all look the same and like that's a psychological men role um once you have a mugshot it did um apparently unless you're a white supremacist then like who is bad and immoral and deserves no rights and should be shot in the head and like everything that comes with it but showing them outside of that situation in their own clothes if they're not dated with you know um but showing them in their own clothes with with no indicators that they're 
not necessarily voluntarily doing this. Like they're being voluntold and and that's a thing and I understand that. But if you create those events as community events and open them for a community who want to come out and all of a sudden you can't tell the difference between which one is being voluntold to be there and which one is coming because they love their community and back. And that's really, really and talk to each other. It gives them an opportunity to find common ground and gain friendships or mentorships or whatever and and really grow as people and create a bond within yeah I mentioned mentoring so that could also bring program not just in that particular setting but by intro by just like hey like I'm a kid and I want to be a mentor I feel like I would be a good mentor or hey like I'm a kid and I would really like to have a mentor or I'm not a kid like tons of adults have mentors I have mentors they've changed since I've grown up heck I'm a mentor to somebody who used to be my mentor like, it's weird. It's such a weird dynamic. But those are all things that are really, really normal in adulthood that it feels like we haven't normalized in in our kids for their childhood. And when I say mentoring, I do not mean rich white kids mentoring poor brown kids or poor kids or poor anything at all. That is a very dynamic that the rich kid or rich adult or written is usually very aware of, and so is the poor person. That is not helpful. Um, it happens organically, it happens organically. When I talk about mentorship, I promise I never mean some rich white kids from the next town over, the next county over, to help these poor brown people. Like, that's very ew. Um, it reminds me a lot, which is just like white supremacy I am not ever here for and I've mentioned that before grams like that could be a thing again run by literally else who is a white and safe adult except for teachers because uh teachers already have slate and they don't and they don't get the respect or the pay and or even like general compensation, not just pay, like support of parents. Sometimes they don't even have the students, although oftentimes students be blamed if they don't want to volunteer or participate in an after-school program and in supervising that. Um, that 100% should fall on. And on the, on that very throw, throw resources, students or teachers or the additional needs met at home regardless of whether their family looks like they need help or whatever like encourage them to take more food pantry create the student pantry that has like fresh food and nutritious food but also not very calorie dense food very calorically heavy food because you don't know the next time that these kids are going to eat or if they're home for a break or whatever and always encourage them to take more than you think that they need and more than they think that they need and they can figure out the rest afterwards it doesn't mean survive on donations of that are like a can of green beans or expired they deserve food that's bought fresh hygiene necessities um, a washer that they can use on day or whatever if they don't have that option at home. Um, give them resources, their own. It's not always feasible for them to be working. And even if they are working in high school, 
Um, they should be working for their wants. They shouldn't have to work for their needs. If they're working for their needs, then they're sort of community support to make sure that, okay, we can't make sure that you have a safe to sleep in. Right? Make sure that you have a bed to sleep in, but we can make sure that you go to bed with your stomach full. And we can make sure that you wake up knowing that tomorrow bed with your stomach full because we will make sure that that is a thing. Look at what and try to meet that. Not everybody necessarily has. But I'm a girl that basic needs are met. I don't, I don't get it. Basic needs not being met, like most petty crime and sometimes like more intense crime. But if you can't look at the community, the people within those communities, right here in Flint or Detroit or Saginaw, or like some dealing drugs and um, like stealing expensive things and selling them on the black market, um, but like selling them to their friends who have money or the rich who has money. Um, why do they need that money? If you can't look at and see them as people, and yeah, that includes criminals, criminals who are actively criminals, that includes criminals who have served their time. But it also includes poor people and single mothers and sex workers and domestic violence victims. That means POC. That means any combination above and so I didn't mention. See them as who deserve their basic needs met and respect regardless of their social economical, socioeconomic, their privileges than as you seem to think that. Like, when you, when you get sentenced to give up your freedom. Just one more thing before we go. I understand that February is Black History Month, and so there's probably a lot of things that people are learning, whether it be online or during school or at conferences. All I ask is that you please be mindful of the people of color in your life who are not nearly as fond of Black History Month as everybody seems to think that we are. It is actually like a really kind of emotionally laborious time for us. And a lot of my Black friends and colleagues, honestly, almost every Black person that I've had this conversation with hates dealing with Black History Month around white people because it's exhausting and we get that you're really excited about the things that you're learning and you want to share that with us. But please understand that the Black history that you're learning in classes is very often a very whitewashed version of history or it's not a full historical context. Please be mindful of that and even more so understand that just because it's Black History Month doesn't mean that Black people are required to educate you about Black history or required to engage with you about the things that you're discovering and the things that you're learning. I know that this month I am working extra hard to make sure I put out content across all of my platforms specifically so that I don't have to have these conversations with anybody in my life. And while a lot of my subscribers aren't people that I talk to regularly, for those of you who I do, uh, please be mindful of that. I have absolutely no intention of talking about anything Thing related to black history or black issues that I don't directly talk about on my platforms and I am 100% willing able and expecting to have people in my inbox or in my email asking me questions regarding 
the content that I've put out and I 100% will always welcome those behaviors but I do want to go ahead and set a boundary that this month the month of February in 2021 I am only willing to talk about the black issues that I create the topic on and I talk about during this month and that is not at all something that would continue in March but Black History Month sucks and I'm constantly bombarded by bullshit this month and I would just really appreciate it if we if we stayed on topic so I'm glad that we had this little discussion and please extend that same respect to the other black people in your life if they're not bringing it up uh, ask permission and see if they're even willing to have that conversation so until next time stay safe